Okay, so transparently, we're talking about the binge uh, series that people binge watch TV, binge watch Netflix, and uh, transparently, some of the movies uh, and TV shows that we've talked to up until this point, I've never seen. Uh, and so, but here is one that I actually binge watched with my wife. The concept just uh, kind of captured us. And, uh, and so it's designated survivor. This concept that, uh, this, so this guy is present, he's uh, the agricultural, used to be somebody like low end in the cabinet, and that like we had the State of the Union address this past week. And uh, so somebody is the designated survivor. Should something catastrophic happen, there's somebody in the cabinet left to take over. Uh, and so this guy happened to be it, something catastrophic happened. He took over as president. And uh, this is a scene when, uh, <laughs> when, there's this outbreak of a disease, and he has to start fighting the pharmaceutical companies that are trying to, to uh, profit from this disease uh, so they can make tons of money, and he negotiates and gets them to sell the drug at a cheaper price uh, so that they can then uh, save these people, and they, they end up doing it. And uh, ironically, as we were preparing for this week, last week, uh, my wife and I met this new couple. And, uh, and she introduced herself, she's a doctor, and she's like, I'm an infectious disease doctor. And uh, so my wife, Ava, had tons and tons of questions. The first thing, of course, though, that she asked was because we are big Walking Dead fans, she's like, well, could the Walking Dead, like, actually happen? And, uh, and what blew me away was this doctor <laughs> said, technically, yes. <laughs> and so now when we watch it on February 25th, uh, that is going to change the show completely for us, thinking that this might actually happen someday, the what-if type question. We ask what-if type questions all, all the time, whether we're sitting in the car, driving around, or just sitting at home, kind of just our brain is going numb on just kind of some of these what-if type questions. What if Elvis is still alive? What if Tupac, for that matter, is still kicking it? Big E. Uh, what if, what if Selena and Justin actually love Jesus? What if they're actually going to fall in love with each other this go around and actually get married? And what if like their love for each other, like they're worth millions and millions. What if they plant a church and reach people for Jesus? Like those are some legitimate what if questions. My, the most legitimate what if question is this though, given the day that we're in. What if win or lose Philadelphia burns down tomorrow? Because win or lose... It's on the table. Philadelphia might not be there tomorrow. When, like, they could win and burn down their own city. I'm from New England. A lot of new people here, like, don't judge me. I'm from New England, grew up there. Uh, my second-born son's name after Tom Brady. Uh, so we ask these what-if type questions often. As comical as some of them might be, what we have to look at today is far less comical. We looked at these surveys that people said, why I hate God, why I hate the church. And one of the big things that they said was rationalizing. How can I rationalize a, a loving God in hell? That, that there is a loving God, you preach a loving God, and, and, and he allows for hell? If I'm honest with myself, that's something I might struggle with from time to time too. How do we rationalize that? What if hell is real? What if God is all loving? How do we rationalize that? And so I think 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9, I think he speaks into this. I think 
what, what, Paul, what Peter does is give us a, a validity to hell and, and, and asks us some questions and, and some, brings up some things that would cause us to pause. He, he starts off in 2 Peter 3 saying this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commitment of the Lord and Savior and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. They're following their own sinful desires. He's writing to these people we're in the, uh, towards the end of this book, and, he, and he's talking to them, and he's, he's reminding them of what has been said of old. He's reminding them of what Jesus was talking about. And through remembering, he's reminding them of who this person Jesus is, Lord and Savior. And if, you're pa if you pause, if you give this some thought, you would look at this and say, Lord and Savior of what? If hell isn't real, there is nothing that I need to be saved from. If all roads lead to God, there's really nothing I need to be saved from. And so we, we pause and we give this as our thought for the morning. The mere thought of hell is cause to pause. And so here it is that we would, we would argue for the validity and the reality of hell. This is a heavy topic. People have been talking about this for ages. Bringing some, some, making some claims to test its validity or to say it is valid. And we want to look at those today as I think Peter does. So the mere thought of hell is cause to pause. And he, he mentions these scoffers. Scoffers have their claim on the validity of hell. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers uh, fell asleep. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He looks at these people and calls them scoffers. Now we have some high schoolers in here or we have some college students or people that are going to go to work tomorrow or I'm a Patriots fan. There's going to be a lot of scoffing today from Eagles fans. Now online, here's what I'm not going to do when you all blow up my phone. I actually turned off my phone. Uh, um, we're used to being in the Super Bowl a lot so I now have learned uh, to turn off my phone whenever we're in the Super Bowl. But I digress, uh, so that when people are scoffing at me, I'm not going to say, oh, you're such a scoffer, you silly, you silly scoffer, like, because we don't necessarily use that term, but what it means is to poke fun at, to, to, to make fun of, to mock, and these are people that are looking with their own evil intent and saying, this can't be real, where is he? You promised this Jesus, where is he? He's coming back, Really? They dis disregard miracles. These are not people that would say miracles can happen. They're not people that are, are looking at Jesus, looking at the resurrection and thinking that it's at all real. And so, of course, they're going to look at his so-called followers and, and poke fun at the whole notion. Their claim is simple. It's not real. He's not coming back. And so we had people that filled out these surveys. I want to read three of these comments. I don't know how I feel about the floating place where God judges is based on rules. If you are gay, etc., burn in hell and damnation. We preach a Jesus of, of love and forgiveness. You can check out the sermon from a few weeks ago. Uh, but hey, you killed the entire family and asked God for forgiveness. Found God. You're cool. Come on in. 
Another person wrote, uh, truthfully, I have a hard time believing in an angry and vengeful God. Another person uh, used a, an illustration of sorts. He's, he or she said, there is a teapot orbiting around the earth. I can't show you, but I know it exists. Now that you know the teapot exists, you must live your life how we, the church of the teapot, uh, prescribe. Otherwise, you will suffer forever. We hope this message of love and dogma will help you be more like us and help you avoid burning uh, forever the church of the teapot. Perhaps there, I don't know these people, it was all anonymous. I, who knows if there is a, a scoffing attitude behind it, a, a poking fun attitude behind it, or if perhaps there is very legitimate thought process behind it. But here's what, at the end of the day, they're looking at this notion of hell, and they're questioning the validity not only of hell, but honestly of God himself. How can we rationalize hell? Are they, are they taking their, their poking fun nature and going to a place where not only does hell not exi exist, God doesn't exist? What's the motive? What's the rationale behind it? Is, it? is it perhaps that when they look at it that they, they turn the focus on themselves and it's like, I'm too legit. I'm too legit to quit. Like God could never quit on me. I'm good to go. And when that thought process that I might be wrong. The hell might be in my future. Brings a whole bunch of thoughts about hell and God at that point. C.S. Lewis in a book called The Great Divorce said this. In, in the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What is it they are asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? He did that on the cross. To forgive them? They don't want forgiveness. To leave them alone? That's what hell is. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. So what's the motivation to dismissing hell and ultimately God as, as a whole? Can we believe in heaven without, without believing in, in a hell? Are we cool with God when we look at this guy in, in Michigan that did a whole bunch of awful things to gymnasts? Do we look at, that, at, at the media and say, I'm cool with God punishing people in an eternal hell in what I see in the media or, what I, or how I've been wronged. Somebody wronged me, I'm cool with God punishing that person. And we're cool with that notion until the focus is put on us. Then all of a sudden, it's all a bunch of garbage. Do we really want to live in a world where free will exists, but there's zero accountability? Have you been in a home where kids have the, the, the honor, the privilege to choose right and wrong, but there's no accountability with whatever decision they make? <laughs> those aren't fun homes. <laughs> Babysit those kids. You'll never babysit again. <laughs> One person asked me this week, how can I, how, why, if God's all-knowing and if, he, if, he, if he's eternal, why, why wouldn't God give us free will but just never allow the people to exist that are going to use it for bad? That before they're actually physically created, why doesn't God just eliminate the people that are going to use their, their, their free will for bad? And I had to give that thought. And as I thought about it, do I, 
isn't that kind of a slippery slope down no free will? That I'm only going to allow those that do good, and then I'm only going to allow those to exist that are going to use their free will for good. Isn't that, isn't that just a, a fine line between, like, no free will, a fine line between, like, we're all robots, like, anybody that's here, like, you have to choose good because I'm allowing you to exist because you will choose good. That, that would make me somewhat robotic, and not, it, would, it would cheapen free will, wouldn't it? And so we live in a world with free will where there is ultimate accountability. And it's been talked about throughout history. This isn't a new concept. So the mere thought of hell is cause to pause. The scoffers have their claim. History has its claim. Peter will go on. He says, for, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of this, these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth are, uh, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He reminds them of history. He reminds them that Jewish or non-Jewish, they would look at the Old Testament and say the flood existed. And then he would remind them of creation, that the power of God to create with water, create with, with, with this beautiful earth. He spoke it into existence, the power of his mere words. The psalmist will talk about how he breathed out stars, that fire came out his mouth. The power to create, the power to end. He reminds them of the flood saying, you, you believe in the flood, the judgment of the ungodly at that time. Scoffers will say he never returned. They're also going to say the flood is a whole bunch of garbage. But we are to live in the reality that it did happen and can happen again, not with water, but this next time by fire. The flood, we, we can discount it, but, but most every faith group has some sort of a, of a rationale behind the flood because it actually happened. And so if you're a faith group, you have to have some sort of a way to, to, to reckon, reckon the flood happening. And so Christians, you can, you can look at Genesis and see what God said actually about the flood. But you can look at other faith groups and you can, you can start to scra scratch your head. One faith group uh, said this about the flood. He says, uh, the king Zisudra, I'm not, not too familiar, but uh, who is told by the god Eniki that the other gods plan to destroy with a flood because people are noisy and are keeping the gods awake. And so out of them being annoyed, they're destroying the earth with a flood. That's a Sumerian, something like that, faith group. That basically, if you water that down, pun intended, I guess, that, that God's annoyed and so wiped out the earth. Every faith group has some sort of a account for this. History talks about it. But again, a God that has the power to create has the power to end. And so the notion of hell, as history would claim, the notion of hell is consistent throughout history. So, so we talked about the state of the union from the president uh, this past, uh, past week. We also had another uh, arguably more important state of the union uh, in that the state of the NFL, every year around the Super Bowl, the commissioner gives his NFL state of the union address. I always find it interesting because he hates the Patriots. And, uh, and so I, I listen. And one big issue that the NFL is wicked struggling with is this notion of concussions. 
If you have any younger kids or if you, or if you thought about the NFL, they had this huge issue with concussions. Rob Gronkowski had one, but he's back today, suckers. And, uh, and, so, and so they had this, this issue with concussions, and, and they look at the history. They have to take it seriously. So I, I looked all week for the best picture of a concussion that I could find, and unfortunately, Google only had this team. Uh, and so this is the best picture uh, I could find uh, with, uh, with concussions. Uh, and so Cowboys fans, Redskins fans, and uh, Giants fans are cool with it. Uh, but <laughs> I again <laughs> digress. Uh, weird. Uh, so, so they have this history. They're looking at this data. They're looking at people like, uh, like Seymour. They're looking at people like Aaron Hernandez. They're looking at the, 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 this history that as they look at the medical records, as they look at the history of all of this, they're looking and saying, this is a serious issue. And we can do two things. We can do as if it doesn't exist. It's not real. We're going to keep on keeping on. Or we can look at the data and say, we have to make a decision. We have to do something about it as they look at the history and the data. And so that same thing is before us as we look at history with the flood in mind, we have a decision to make. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to live in the reality that Christ could come back at any moment? Wouldn't that change so much about us? I thought I'm a Christian and I truly live as if Christ could come back at any moment. Do I want him to come back and catch me in silence? Do I want him to come back and catch me with the proverbial, uh, my pants down? Do I want him to catch me striving for that one last hit? This is my last one, and then I'll be good. Do I want him to come back with me hoarding all of my funds, all of the money that he's blessed me with for what when he comes back? The skeptic, there's skeptics on all sorts of things. But for the skeptic that can wrap their mind around the notion of God, the, the skeptic that can wrap their mind around the, the notion of a flood, what are you going to do about it? Perhaps you're not at the point of saying yes to Jesus, but you're at the point where it's worth some thought. What if? What if? What if? And so scripture goes on. Scripture has its claims. The mere thought of hell is caused to pause. Scoffers have a claim. History has a claim. Now scripture will make a claim. Peter will go on in quoting Psalm 90. He'll say, but you do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day is as a thousand years, but a thousand years is as one day. He's looking at them in this context of hell and saying, you can count on the Lord's return. Forget what the mockers, forget what those that are teasing you are saying. You can count on this. But remember this one fact. Your God is timeless. You're a finite being. You have a birthday. You have a death day. That's not true of God. He's eternal. He's always been. He always will be. That's not something as finite beings that we can fully wrap our minds around. And so a timeless, eternal God reminds me that my ways are not his ways. My thoughts are not his thoughts. What may not offend me, if it's against him, will certainly offend him. And so God, Scripture's claim is that God is not on our timetable. So we must be ready. Our guard must be up. It's weird in this room I joke a lot with uh, Jonathan and Bowinski right here. It's weird to me in this room that there are a handful of people that were never born when 9-11 happened. Thank you, Jonathan, for reminding how, me how old I'm getting. 
But when that happened, the days following with Homeland Security and these threat levels, many of us, after that happened, we, we, we could say, like, it was on the tip of our tongue, what, what was the current threat level? What, what color was it? What did it represent? But now, 15, 16, 17 years removed, few of us, a few of us could, but a few of us, only few of us could actually say, what is the current threat level? I can't. Because what happens is when something tragic happens, when, when something catastrophic happens like that, yes, we have all the patience in the world to go through the airport and, and, and deal with the longer lines. Like when that first happened, everybody was patient. But then as the months and weeks or whatever went on, we grew, we grew less patient. As the months, years, everything went on, we, our guard kept going lower and lower and lower. And now to the point, after this tragic event, our guard is somewhat down. And that is human nature. So Peter is looking at this and saying to us in 2018, it might be 2018 years removed from Jesus, but be ready, be on guard. It can happen at any point. If you look at the, at the, the prophecies of the end times and Jesus' return, the, the reality of hell, the next step is Christ's return. Are we ready? Do we want to get our stuff together later? I've got time. Or do we want to look at this and say, what if you and I need to determine this right now? So we looked at all sorts of claims, and I'm thankful that God has settled the claim. The mere thought of hell is caused to pause. Scoffers have their claim. History has its claim. Scripture has its claim. And now God has thankfully settled the claim. He goes on to say, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that you should perish, but that the Lord should reach repentance, that each one of you should reach repentance. The Lord will come like a thief. He's not slow. He takes no pleasure in people going to hell. The verse says the exact opposite. The verse says that he is slow, that he's not working on our timetable, that he's going to come back suddenly, but he's holding it off to do what? To give people the time to turn to him, to hear the name of Jesus and make a decision about him. He's giving time for, the, for repentance, where a scoffer will look at your God and, and he will say, well, he's not merciful. He's not loving. A loving God could never do that. We look at his delay and say, no, he is merciful. No, he is gracious. He's not tardy. He's patient. This week, to think that I would be speaking and preaching against the power of darkness and speaking love and light into it. I fooled myself to think that the powers of darkness wouldn't, wouldn't bring some sort of oppression on me. And as I thought about what I was able to preach and the goodness of the message, I put myself into the verse and I was thankful for it. God is not patient. God is patient towards Jason. Not wishing Jason to perish. But for Jason to come to repentance. At the end of the day, this isn't doom and gloom. It reminds me of my loving God. So I want us to read this together. I used to be a youth pastor. Uh, and so I know the, the teenagers in the room, you're going to be uh, tempted to actually say the words insert name. Uh, please don't. Uh, please, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to read this and we're going to insert our literal names. And uh, so let's, let's read this together. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards Jason, 
not wishing that Jason should perish, but that Jason should reach repentance. So he's delayed on purpose. This is a great joy for us as Christians. Why? It gives us more time to talk to other people. It reminds us of the generosity of our God. We better open our, mind, our mouth about it. People have argued, well, I can't believe in a loving God because what about people that don't know Jesus? Well, put them aside for one second. You are hearing the name of Jesus right now because somebody believes it and is put on mission to tell others. So accept it and then go on mission. You have time to tell others about Jesus. What are you going to do about it? Check out this uh, commercial. Liberty Mutual saved us almost $800 when we switched our auto and home insurance. Liberty did what? Yeah, they saved us a ton, which gave us a little wiggle room in our budget. Wish our insurance did that. Then we could get a real babysitter instead of your brother. Hey, welcome back. This guy, right? <laughs> yes. Ellen? That's my robe. You could save $782. They have, like, so many of those commercials. And they, like, if I want to binge watch YouTube, like, I could watch those commercials for a while because they're just so real <laughs> of sorts. So in, in the insurance world, there's a term called settling, uh, settling the claim. And here's what it technically means. If, if an insurer settles a claim, it pays money to the policyholder for the occurrence of loss or risk against which they were insured. We all want insurance. This week, my wife and I found out that uh, our, insur our homeowner's insurance uh, didn't have a thing in there. It would automatically get renewed. And we got this letter in the mail saying that for the last 10 days, we didn't have homeowner's insurance. And we were like, okay. So we made a lot of phone calls because that would be a very uneasy life to live. Uh, thinking that any day our house could be bye-bye. What happens when a claim is settled is that money is given out. If I wrong somebody, the claim will be settled when that person receives money. If I have been wrong, the claim is then settled when I receive money to, to, to deal with that. God, in settling the claim over our lives, has done both. He says in, in a verse that we looked at a few weeks ago, and you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by what? Canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to God, in saying that he's a fair God, says that the penalty for all sin, not how you define it, how God defines it, says that everyone that makes a, a sin, commits a sin, commits wrong, all has the same exact penalty, the law. And so Jesus, to be the fulfillment of the law, was born under the law, keeps it perfectly. And then because the wrath of God is not on him, God puts it on him. I am a decently good person, I'd like to think, despite growing up in New England, you Eagles fans. But I can't die for you. Because who's going to die for me under the same penalty? And so Jesus lives and fulfills the law by keeping it perfectly. And God then takes the wrath, the literal wrath of God, out on Jesus settle the claim, to cancel the debt that you and I can't do on our own 
This isn't doom and gloom. This is we get to praise our God for all of eternity. If you have lost loved ones that call on the name of the Lord, they are in the midst of the greatest worship party ever. Why? Because we, we get to spend eternity with Jesus. He wants to take sorrow and turn it into joy. And it starts with repentance. It starts with looking at my wrong and truly being broken on it. It's not, it's not looking at my wrong and being like, oh, yeah, I kind of need Jesus. He's cool and all. No, I look at my wrong and say, I am sorry. I can't be blasé about my wrong. God, I have offended you, the holy, eternal God, and I am broken by it. And then he takes brokenness and brings joy out of that. That's why David, after he committed adultery and killed the person, he says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It breaks me, but it brings me to a place of praise when I remember that in my brokenness, as God said in Zephaniah, I will delight in you and I will sing over you. So the mere thought of hell is cause to pause. Scoffers have their claim. History has its claim, and uh, Scripture has its claim, and thank God that God has settled the claim. So are we forgiven? Are we broken? Are we sorrowful over that? Do we want to turn to Jesus? The tickets are still available. They are completely free, but they are limited time only because Jesus can come back at any point. So if we call on the name of Jesus, what are we going to do about this? Here's, here's what we don't do. We don't try to dress it up and be like we tell it as it is. We don't quit our jobs. Please don't go in tomorrow morning and quit your job. Jesus could come back any day. This could be it, so I'm out. No. You don't move to the highest mountain to be the first ones gone when Jesus comes back. You definitely, here's my pet peeve. You definitely don't try to set the dates. Like you know those like, morons that that try to like set the date of when Jesus is coming back like scripture clearly says like you don't know when he's coming back but you get these people that like well mathematically here's what I've discovered only me I've discovered this he's coming back in about 45 days so if you pay me enough money I'll help you get there to the end and and so we don't try to set the date here's what we do we live every day for the glory of God we live every day as if it is our actual last day we do our work diligently we pray for one we pray God give me one more give me one more one more person into your kingdom because if you come back right now i want to stand before god and say i gave it my very best effort god i want as many people in your kingdom as quickly as possible we give it thought and we praise him through it and we're going to do that at the end we're going to have a time of singing and communion and a time of remembering the glory of salvation And so that's my challenge for us this week is that all of us, Christians and non alike, skeptics or not, scoffers or not, that we would give this 15 minutes of careful reflection. For some of us, that will bring us to a place of worship. For others, you have to look at this and you have to look at that, take that 15 minutes to ask some what if questions. What if? What if? What if? Maybe one of your what if questions is going to be, what if my definition is not the same as God? What if, if God is eternal, if God has a perception different than mine, as I define what fair is, perhaps God defines fair differently. Because he is eternal, and I have this human perspective. He gets to define what is fair as he is holy, and he says what is fair is that everybody has an even playing field. All sin, one or a thousand, have the same penalty, and I get to decide what is fair and how I treat that. But then maybe another one of your what-if questions as you're spending 15 minutes in reflection is, well, does God then, what if, does God really have 
the ability to punish all sin. Is that, can a loving God punish all sin? Check out this scene from that Michigan judge. It is my privilege to sentence you to 40 years. And when I look at my cheat sheet, 40 years, just so you know and you can count it off your calendar, is 480 months. The tail end, because I need to send a message to the parole board in the event, somehow God is gracious, and I know he is. And you survived the 60 years in federal court first, and then you started my 40 years? You've gone off the page here as to what I'm doing. My page only goes to 100 years. Sir, I'm giving you 175 years, which is 2,100 months. <coughs> I've just signed your death warrant. As he was trying to define fair himself, he wrote a letter to the judge saying, for my own emotional health, I don't want to hear the stories of these young ladies. Get rid of them. I have a daughter that just this week signed up for gymnastics. And this man, hundreds of women that he abused. And he had the tenacity, the guts to say, judge, what would be fair is my emotional health. I don't want to hear these stories. And so the judge, as a good and fair judge, said no. <laughs> and she ripped up that letter in his face and said, you will hear every last story. Because you need to know the weight of what you've done. Perhaps God, as a righteous and good judge, has to punish sin in defining what fair is. Perhaps he couldn't be a righteous and good judge if he said some are let off the hook and some are not. Some do enough good. Some do not do enough good. Perhaps we think that God should pick and choose because we do forget that my wrong, despite what society and how society will classify sin, that my wrong, big or small in a society sense, cultural sense, offends a holy and perfect eternal God. I have to break that my wrong has offended him. Do I really want, another what if question, do I want to live as if eternity rests on my shoulders that I could possibly please God? That is not a pressure that I want to live every single day with. We do this all the time when, we, when we're driving down the street. The, the speed limit might be 30 and you pass a cop going 35 and you're like, oh, I'm only going five over. Everything is good. You probably think that. You were like, I would never get pulled over. But instinctively, what does every single one of us do? We check the mirror. We do slow down. We check the, the mirror on the side. Even if we're going five under, we're like, well, what if the cop has a cranky day? Instinctively, we look at the mirror to see if we see the, the berries and cherries turning and behind us that we're, we're beat. Because it's a pressure to live every day thinking, was I good? Did I get this right? And what is a cop going to do about it? Do all my good, is it possible to, to do enough good to appease a holy God? And he says, I, as a good and fair judge, I'm going to take wrath out. I have to punish your sin. And so I'm going to do it in Jesus.
the good and fair judge, I've still taken wrath out. Just not on you. Did it on Jesus. So this is cause to pause. Uh, will there be a reverent worship party for all of eternity with you? Do, you? do you believe in this life that Jesus has canceled the debt or settled the claim? Or are you going to wait till the next life for Jesus to settle the claim or for God to settle, settle the debt? The implications of when this happens are drastic. I want nothing more than to party with you guys for all of eternity. And it starts with brokenness. It starts with bringing, being broken over my sin and turning it to praise to God that he accomplished something as a righteous and fair judge that only could be accomplished through Jesus. So yes, the mere thought of hell, the reality of hell is cause to pause. And we're going to end now with a time of communion. The ushers or the aisle hosts are going to come down and, and give us all one of these fancy little cups.